Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you have told us that your name is I am that I am. Not just I was that I was or I will be what I will be, but you are eternally present. I am that I am. And in worship tonight, Lord, we want to say you are. And to everyone we know in witness, we want to say he is. And the revelation of your presence through the ages revealed in the scriptures reminds us again, Lord, that you are worthy of our worship, that you are worthy of our lives. And Father, I pray that something in your word tonight would be life-changing for us, that what we read and hear tonight would help us to live for you in the real world. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. What a great night. Thanks to uh, our youngest worship leaders, the children who led us, and then uh, to our, our students as well. Great, great music, great worship tonight. I understand that our adult choir is working on a setting of uh, sort of an unusual setting for this summer, and it is basically Joe Wright's prayer set to music. Now, some of you don't know who Joe Wright is, but let me just say to you, he is the farthest thing from being politically correct. In fact, uh, his prayer, if you've seen it, is uh, found uh, on the internet these days. It's a prayer that he actually prayed for the Kansas State Senate when he was invited to pray there. And uh, I'm not particularly interested in his political persuasion uh, either way. I'm not uh, promoting that at all. But, you know, I've never met Joe, but I know this about him. He's a prophet. And I want you to just hear the words that he prayed. Um, Heavenly Father, so he started well. Nobody's offended by him saying that, at least you wouldn't think. But then he began to pray. We come before you today to ask your forgiveness and seek your direction and guidance. Lord, we know your word says, woe to those who call evil good. But that's exactly what we've done. We've lost our spiritual equilibrium and inverted our values. We confess that we've ridiculed the absolute truth of your word and called it moral pluralism. We've worshipped other gods and called it multiculturalism. We've endorsed perversion and called it an alternative lifestyle. We've exploited the poor and called it the lottery. We've neglected the needy and called it self-preservation. We've rewarded laziness and called it welfare. We've killed our unborn and called it choice. We've shot abortionists and called it justifiable. We've neglected to discipline our children and called it building esteem. We've abused power and called it political savvy. We've coveted our neighbor's possessions and called it ambition. We've polluted the air with profanity and pornography and called it freedom of expression. We've ridiculed the time-honored values of our forefathers and called it enlightenment. Search us, O God, and know our hearts today. Try us and see if there be some wicked way in us. Cleanse us from every sin and set us free. And then he prayed for those senators and representatives who would govern the great state of Kansas. And he asked it in the name of God's Son, the living Savior, Jesus Christ. And while he was praying, people walked out. People who disagreed. Some gave speeches later that day and said this was the very kind of hate speech that was not called for, that was unwarranted. In some way, if you understand the spirit of Joe Wright and the way that he was received, you know 
something about the story of Amos. I'm guessing most of us don't know Amos well. For some of you, maybe like me, the, the, the Amos I know best is the magnificent boxer dog who lives a little bit down the bayou. I know his name. I heard his owner call him Amos one time. I've always called him by Amos ever since. He looks at me curiously, wondering how I know his name, I suppose. And maybe we know the prophet Amos about as well as we know our our neighbor's dog. But my prayer is that in the few moments I have with you tonight, that you will know Amos better than you've ever known him before. So would you open your Bibles with me to the book of Amos in the Old Testament? It's right after Joel, right before Obadiah. Does that help? Page 1025, if you have one of these Bibles that the staff has. For the rest of you, you'll just have to find it. It's in, it's in your, uh, it's there at the beginning. You can find it in the table of contents. Let's stand together to hear the word of the Lord tonight from the book of Amos, chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2, and then I'm going to turn to chapter 5. And read verses 18 through 24. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, what he saw concerning Israel. Two years before the earthquake, when Uzziah was king of Judah, and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, was king of Israel. He said... The Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up, and the top of Carmel withers. And then in chapter 5, verses 18 and following, he says, 5 verse 18, Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear, as though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light, pitch dark without a ray of brightness? I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never-failing stream. Thank you. You may be seated. Before the writing prophets, there were those preachers who made their message known by speaking, preachers like Samuel and Nathan and Elijah and Elisha and Micaiah. Their messages and stories are told, and as we've heard the students uh, tonight or seen them act out dramatically, Samuel and Kings and Chronicles. Amos may have been the very first of the writing prophets, and immediately you say, no. That's Isaiah, Pastor. You can just go back and see. Just let me remind you that these are not necessarily in chronological order. That major doesn't mean that these are important and minor prophet mean that they're unimportant. It's just 
The larger books come first and the shorter books come afterward. And Amos, though his book is not as long as Isaiah, was likely an inspiration to the prophet Isaiah who said, Woe to you who call evil good in Isaiah chapter 5. But before he said woe, Amos said woe. Amos didn't choose to be a preacher, by the way. And I would just say to you that preaching is not something you can choose to do on your own. It's more likely something you get chosen for. And Amos was minding his own business. He was taking care of his sheep. He was actually bivocational. He shepherded sheep and he tended fig trees. That was his work. He he was a sort of a rancher and farmer. That was all he did. And I suspect Amos might have been content to do that for the rest of his life, just to mind his own business in his little village of Tekoa. But one day God spoke, and when God speaks, you have to act. And God said, I want you to leave the southern part of of ancient Israel, which is called Judah by this time, the southern kingdom, two tribes, remember that, and I want you to go north. I want you to go to the northern kingdom, not the south where Jerusalem is the capital. That's where he lived. But instead, I want you to go to the north where Samaria is the capital, where the people don't worship in Jerusalem, but they've set up their their little statues of bulls in places like Bethel and Dan, and go there and, and preach to them and tell them that they are in a lot of trouble. Now that's the the basic message. Every week we plan worship and our worship planning team comes together and they say, so what is the message for the chapel series this Sunday night? And I said three words, doom, doom, and doom. Amos was not a positive thinker. If Amos had not made somebody mad by 8 o'clock in the morning, he was having a bad day. He was willing to say what God told him to say without regard for the consequences. And what Amos says is, our God is a just judge. He judges sin. Particularly, God judges the sin of injustice and inhumanity of man to man. And God, when he judges, will ultimately bring to an end those who make light of a just judge who is God. Those who make light of God, God will ultimately judge And the people of Amos's day did not want to hear that. Neither, I'm confident, do most of the people who live in our world today. And Amos would not have been politically correct when he said, God judges sin. The people of northern Israel lived in a time of unprecedented prosperity. It was a sort of renewal of the, of the riches of David and Solomon's time. And Jeroboam II reigned with opulent wealth. And the people lived in the lap of luxury. And the wealthy got wealthier. And the poor became more poor. And everybody was happy with it, at least Those wealthy people who had a voice were happy with that. They loved the status quo. And by the way, they were very religious people. They never missed worship. They were always at worship. They were always singing their songs. But all the while, all of their worship didn't change the way they lived in the least. 
They kept on doing what they wanted to do. So Amos would say to them, come up to Bethel, your place of worship, and sin. Go down to Gilgal and sin. Just, just go to church and it'll be okay if you want to sin. Long as you go, confess your sins. Then you can just go do whatever you want to do the rest of the week. But God says, I'm really tired of worship that doesn't change your lives. So take away the noise of your songs because you can't sing enough songs to make it okay to mistreat the poor. You can't do enough good things at church to make it okay for you to become wealthy through your greed and your ambition while you are trampling on the poor. And when I read Amos this week, the words that came to mind for me were these, America, meet the Almighty. We live in a world of great prosperity. We have acquired wealth compared to almost every other place on the globe. We live in the lap of luxury. And the truth is, it's just inconvenient sometimes to think about the fact that not everybody in our land of opportunity has been able to avail themselves of that opportunity. We live in a world that is largely religious. Our opinion polls through the years up to this minute say that 90 plus percent of the people in America believe that there is a God. But the God that we believe in is another matter. Because the God that most people in the United States believe in is not the God of the New Testament. Not the God of justice And we can say with uh, some of our founding fathers that if we believe that God is a just God, Thomas Jefferson said, if God is a just God, then I tremble for my country. I wonder what Thomas Jefferson would say if he lived today. I wonder what Amos would say if we invited him to be our pulpit guest. Anybody here think he'd pat us on the back and say, hey, keep doing what you're doing. You're really doing good. Or would Amos come to us and give us a vision of God that would so terrify us when we're tempted to sin that we would choose to obey God, that we would not look the other way when we saw people who were suffering and hurting. If we saw God, the God that Amos preached, I am convinced it would change the way we relate to worship in this place and the way we relate to other people everywhere we go. What if we met God? What if we came face to face with God? The writer of Hebrews said, our God is a consuming fire. He is not to be taken lightly. He is not to be trivialized. And what Amos teaches us about our God, he begins in a a subtle sort of way. Basically, Amos preached about sin and he was against it. He was always against it. He was against it, for instance, when he begins to draw this magnificent circle that sort of uh, hits the bullseye of Israel. He starts out by saying, God is going to judge Damascus. Now, Damascus is the capital city of of the Syrians who were enemies of Israel at this time. And so when he says, God's going to get those people who live in Damascus, he would have gotten a hearty amen as he preached there in the northern kingdom. This country bumpkin goes north and begins to preach and says, did you know God's going to judge Damascus? 
Damascus, and there was an amen chorus from the people. He said, not only is God going to judge Damascus, but he'll judge Gaza and Ekron and Ashdod of the Philistines. Amen, they might have said. God's not going to stop there. He said, he's going to get the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, who've been so inhumane to their neighbors, who've laughed while other people were suffering, and he would have heard amen when he said, God's going to get the Ammonites and the Moabites. They would have said amen and amen. But he got a little bit closer to home when he said, God's going to judge Judah for three sins of Judah for four. God will not remain silent. Wow. Wow. He's preaching against his own people. Okay, we can go for that. If you want to pick on the southerners, that's fine with us. But then he said, for three sins of Israel, for four. And he began to talk about the northern kingdom. And that's when he stopped preaching and started meddling. Look, if I stood up tonight and said, God's going to judge Al-Qaeda, I'm pretty sure everybody in the room would be okay with that. If I said, Osama bin Laden's going to get his, we would all say amen to that. If you and I were to talk tonight about the northern Koreans and the way they've mistreated the people in South Korea, we might say, oh, amen. God will, God will correct that injustice. But what about the injustice in our country? Do we really want to hear? What does he say about the people of Israel? Well, you, you'll see it outlined there in, in chapter 2 after he sort of brings it to the uh, to. Uh, the, the bullseye, he points right at them in chapter 2, verse 6, and he says the first sin is verse, verse 6. They sell the righteous for silver. They're more interested in money than they are in people. They sell the needy for a pair of sandals. They had sweatshops even in those days. They took advantage of the poor. They trample on the heads of the poor and upon the dust of the ground, and they deny justice to the oppressed. There's this resident inhumanity. They don't care about the poor. And if you know anything about the scriptures, you know that even when we don't, God cares about the poor. We can have the attitude that my uh, ethics professor used to say, Daniel McGee used to say, God for every man and every man for himself, said the elephant as he danced among the chickens. You can say God for every man and every man for himself if you're an elephant while you're dancing among the chickens. But if you're a chicken, you really, really don't, don't want to be God for every man and every man for himself as the elephant dances among you. Two church fathers help us here with the attitude of earlier generations of believers. Ambrose, a church father, said, there's your brother naked and crying and you're worried about what you're going to put on your floor, the choice of an attractive floor covering. Fourth century Fourth century, Basil the Great said, the bread you don't use, that's the bread for the hungry. The clothes in your closet that you don't wear, we've been doing spring cleaning at our house, this is painful to say. The clothes in your closet that you don't wear, those are the clothes for the naked. The shoes you don't wear are the shoes for the one who's barefoot. The money you keep locked away, that's the money to take care of the poor, said Basil the Great, who preached not far from where uh, Scott and Abby are these days. Tim Keller says, the Lord made the world to be a fabric, interwoven and interdependent. Shalom, the peace of God, is not just the absence of war. It's when we live in harmonious relationships with each other. And he gives a a concrete example. He says, in the large cities of our world, children are growing up as functional illiterates, largely due to school and family situations. By the time they become teenagers, they can't read or write. Some people pin this problem on unjust social structures. Others blame the breakdown of the city. But nobody would say it's the kid's fault. 
So Keller concludes, nobody says that seven-year-olds need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. And yet a child born into my family has a 300 or 400 times greater chance for economic or social flourishing than kids in those neighborhoods in our world. And that's just one example of the way in which the fabric of the world, the shalom of the world has been broken. It's not enough to do individual charity. You have to address larger kinds of structural issues. So Amos did. So Abby Tracy does. So must we. He indicts them for their injustice, also for their immorality. Father and son use the same girl. He talks about cult prostitution as part of their cultic worship. They were involved in prostitution. A friend shared with me a shocking vision of the so-called modern family in Newsweek magazine recently where it tells about two people of the same gender who get married and have a bunch of kids and say anybody who doesn't like our arrangement of family is just hateful and bigoted. And it was considered in this article, Newsweek has gotten very interesting about just allowing all kinds of voices to speak without questioning them or being critical at all. And this was considered, they said, the wave of the future. But Romans chapter 1 says God gives us over to the wrath that falls upon us. If we, if we are bound and determined to go our way, even though God says that is not his way, if we're bound and determined to go that way, God will allow us to go that way. Sometimes God gives us what we want, but with it he gives us leanness of soul we can choose to sin against God, but Amos says there will be a payday someday. He talks about the indecency in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. There were Nazarites. These were the people who were committed to God from birth. They didn't cut their hair. Remember Samson? They didn't drink wine. And because when they preached, it made other people uncomfortable, they tried to get the Nazarites to drink wine, to break their vows to God, because it would make them more comfortable. We hear it in our media as they ridicule those who claim to live for Christ. Tim Tebow and his commitment to personal purity until marriage is widely ridiculed by the media as, uh, as impossible to live up to. There's idolatry. These folks go to church every Sunday, but it doesn't change the way they live. And listen to the way God describes their worship. He says, you keep on bringing your sacrifices. You go to Bethel and you sin. You go to Gilgal, you sin yet more. Chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, you bring your sacrifices. You burn your leavened bread as a thank offering. For this is what you love to do. He says that's the way you love to worship. Nobody's asking God what he wants, what he loves in worship. So God calls them to return to himself five times there in chapter 4. He says, I gave you a chance, but you refused to turn to me. And so he says, finally, prepare to meet your God. Are we ready to meet God? If the tragedies of the last week have taught me anything, it is that we must always be ready to meet God. Because we are not guaranteed. We are not guaranteed another moment. We may say, well, justice would say that I have the right to live until I'm in my 70s. Justice would say I have the right to see my kids get out of high school. But my, my friend, Charlie Terry, who passed away this week, who loved the Lord with a passionate love, was taken away in the very prime of his life. I'm 48 years old too. Let me just say, that is the prime of life. That used to sound old. It sounds younger every day. 
48 years young, and he is gone. And here is his wife and his 16-year-old son and his 20-year-old son. Here is a 39-year-old in our own congregation who is a 4-year-old and a 1-year-old. We are not guaranteed another minute. So when Amos says, prepare to meet your God, that means you and I must stay ready so that we don't have to get ready because there won't be any time to get oil in your lamp after the bridegroom comes. We must be ready. How do we get ready? How do we prepare to meet God? He says in chapter 5, seek God. Don't just seek yourself, but seek God. Don't go to Bethel. He says, don't go to Gilgal. Seek the Lord and you will live You will live. God wants us to live. He goes on to say in chapter 5, verse 14, Seek good and not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you, just as you say He is. You think God's with you. He says, He's not. But if you would seek Him, you would live. They they keep saying, well, their version of the second coming. The day of the Lord is coming. And then, that's going to be a great day. Because all those people that you said God is going to get, yeah, Amos, God's going to get them. But He's going to leave us alone. And Amos says, God is an equal opportunity judge. He judges sin wherever he sees it. He judges it in the Moabites, and he judges it in the Israelites. He judges it in, uh, in those Al-Qaeda of Afghanistan, and God judges sin in the United States of America. And the fact that you were born in this country does not give you an exemption from the judgment of God. He will judge sin wherever he finds it. I don't know if that's good news or bad news, but I know this, when the Lord comes, he will judge sin. And so God promises this coming judgment day, and this is the the memorable way he depicts it in chapter 5, those verses I read to you. He says, why do you long for the day of the Lord? It's not going to be light for some of you. It's going to be darkness, he says. It's going to be like you were running in the forest and ran into a lion. And so you turn around and you ran for your life and ran smack into a bear. And so you ran from the bear and you made it panting into your house, closed the door behind you, leaned your hand against a wall, and a poisonous snake bit you on the arm and you died. This judgment, he says, is inevitable. In chapter 9, verses 1 to 10, he says, God will bring judgment and it's like the walls of the temple will come crashing down and you won't be able to go up And you won't be able to go down, and you won't be able to go away. Nobody will be able to escape the judgment of God. I got a little further in that book today, and Louis Zamperini escapes the the plane crash and the sharks only to be stranded in the ocean for weeks. And then he hears a plane, and he's he's excited because he's about to be rescued. And it turns out that the plane starts shooting at him. It's an enemy plane. I haven't gotten any further. I'll tell you more next week, but I'm just saying... You know, that'd be a bad day. You know, you make it past the plane crash. You, you wake up in the ocean. You find the life raft. You get in it. You, you survive famine and you survive the sharks. And then you hear a plane and you think you're being... That's the way the people of Israel were. We can't wait for the day of the Lord. Amos said, you might want to wait until you get your life right to anticipate the day of the Lord. And by the way, if there's anything you're planning on doing before Jesus comes back, you might get busy doing that because... Not one more thing has to happen before he returns. Not one more thing. He can come whenever he wants to come. And you and I need to stay ready so that we don't have to get ready because there won't be time to find oil for your lamp when the bridegroom comes. Now what God wants from his people is not just token worship. 
He says, I want justice. He's a God of justice. He's a just judge. What does he want from us? He wants us to become like him. He wants us to be conformed to the image of his son. He says, let justice roll down like a river. Righteousness. We sing, I've got peace like a river. I wonder if we could make it work, Randy. I've got justice like a river. Nobody sings that. But that's what God wants. He doesn't want our justice to be intermittent. He wants it to roll on like, a, like the Jordan River, like a perennial. There were two kinds of rivers in Israel. There was a wadi, which was a, a dry stream bed. You can go there today and find them. You can walk up and down these dry. 20 French archaeologists were walking in a wadi some 30 years ago, just getting ready for an archaeological dig. The easiest way was to go down the stream bed. They didn't know that there had been a rainstorm just a couple of hours north of them. But they knew when the 20-foot-tall wall of water washed them away. Wadis are treacherous. They're dry one day. The next minute, you may be drowning in one of them. God says, I don't want your justice to be hit and miss. I want your justice to flow down like an ever-flowing stream. I've got justice like a river. God says, I'll give you signs of my coming. God says, when I come, when I come, it will be, he gives him these visions in chapter 7 of locusts. And, and when Amos hears about the destruction of the locusts, he says, God, spare Jacob. He's too small. Amos, who has a rap as being a preacher uh, uh, who enjoys seeing people suffer judgment, on the other hand, says, when God says, I'm going to judge them like a locust, he says, no, no, God, don't do it. Let them live. When God says, I'm going to bring a fire sweeping through, he says, no, no, Jacob is too small. He can't survive this. God says, I'll drop a plumb line among my people, and we'll see whether or not they're true to plumb. And to the extent that they are crooked, I will straighten them out. And this time, Amos doesn't say, spare them, because God's going to destroy the high places and the sanctuaries, and he's going to bring judgment against their political leaders, against Jeroboam. And when he says the name Jeroboam, well, that's when he gets in trouble, because Amaziah, the high priest, comes and, uh, and he says uh, to Jeroboam first, um, this preacher from the south is preaching against you, Jeroboam, and the land can't bear his words. We can't, we can't listen to these sermons anymore, so we need you to silence this, this preacher and make him stop saying what he's saying. He says Amos is raising a conspiracy, and Amos finds himself in a storm for doing the right thing. I have a preacher friend who had the audacity back in the 1960s to, to call for the end of racism. He did that in a, in a Texas Baptist church in a, in a Texas town, and it caused a controversy in the church. One of his deacons came to him and said, Preacher, when you get outside the will of God, you may find yourself in a storm. My preacher friend, who's not afraid of anybody, said to him, You know, I find in the Bible that often when the prophets and the preachers were in the will of God, they found themselves in a storm. In fact, you and I, when we do what God wants us to do, don't need to worry about what other people say. I love the way God gives Amos boldness when Amaziah Amaziah says to him, get out of here, you seer, go back south. We don't need you in the north. We've already got preachers up here. And he must have felt like a Palestinian at a bar mitzvah. He was on the outside looking in, but he just kept on preaching. Listen to his, his integrity. He says, I'm not a paid preacher. I didn't come here for the money. I don't have a a new and and affluent ministry here. I was busy picking figs and taking care of the sheep. He was more committed to doing God's will than 
to worrying about what others thought about him. So when Amaziah tells him to leave, Amos says, yeah, well, your life's not going to go very well. I'll let you read it. It's in chapter 7 at the end there. He's not very nice to his family. John Knox feared God so much they said that he never feared any man. I see that in Amos. And God shows the inevitability of judgment in a basket of ripe fruit in the temple itself caving in. God shows the inevitability of judgment. And he pictures a day at the end of chapter 8 when there will be a famine, not of food or water, but a famine for the word of God. These people don't want to hear the word of God that Amos is preaching, but Amos says there will come a day when you'll want to hear from God but you won't be able to hear from him. The famine will be for God's word, and people, he says, will travel east and west searching for some word from God, but they won't be able to find it. How many Bibles do you have in your house? How often do you read them? There are places in our world. I have friends who are in the Gideon's organization. They tell stories from other countries of people who literally cry out for the Bible. Francis Chan told about those, uh, those missionaries who uh, went to another country from Korea and all they had was one Bible and they tore it up and took fragments of it with them and it was the only thing that sustained their souls. We know what it's like to crave food. All of us get cravings for different kinds of food. But Augustine said, oh God, you have made us for yourself and we are restless until we find rest in you. God shakes the temple up in chapter 9 and in the end, in the end, there is this marvelous message of hope after the disaster. This is what Amos says, in that day I will restore David's fallen tent. This is chapter 9, verse 11. I will repair its broken places restore its ruins. God says, I will restore the sanctuary. The days are coming, verse 13, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman. He'll restore not only the, the um, spiritual life of the people, their peace, their shalom, but he will restore prosperity. And he offers them hope. I will bring back my people and I will plant, verse 15, Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them. Is this the return of Israel after the captivity of 70 years? Is this some millennial promise? Romans chapter 9 verses, uh, Romans chapters 9 to 11 tell us that God will deal at some point with Israel again. But remember this, when he does, he will do it through Jesus Christ, his son. That's the way God will restore his people when they put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and he promises they will rebuild and remain. Is it symbolic? Is it real? As we look at it, the, the bottom line must be this. Is there any hope? for the hurting, hopeless people in our world. And Amos says there is hope. And that hope is found in the God of justice. In a world of deep injustice, God calls us to be his people on mission in the world. You want to talk about hope for our world? We can talk about the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. But I read these statistics this week, and they reminded me that we make up 5% of the world's population, but we own one-fifth of the world's wealth. A billion people in our world don't have access to clean water. Every seven seconds, somewhere in the world, a child under the age of five dies of hunger, while Americans throw away 14% of the food we purchase. Nearly one billion people in the world live on less than one American dollar a day. Another two and a half billion people live on less than two American dollars a day. More than half of the world lives on less than $2 a day. 
while the average American teenager, I'm not talking about y'all, but the average American teenager spends nearly $150 a week. Don't ask your parents for that much in allowance. These are just statistics. I'm just saying 40% of the people in the world lack basic sanitation. 1.6 billion people in the world have no electricity. Nearly 1 billion people in the world cannot read or sign their name. And Americans spend more money on trash bags on average than half of the world spends on what they eat. You want to talk about justice? It can't be God for every man and every man for himself, said the elephant as he danced among the chickens. Because in that analogy, yeah, we're the elephant. We're not the chickens. And my word to you is there is hope. But that hope comes when God's people put the gospel into practice. And when we put the gospel into practice, that means we lead people to Jesus Christ. And when we lead people to Jesus Christ, we discover that Jesus Christ loved people. He loved all people. And the promise at the end of Amos is that all the nations who go by God's name will come to him. When we take the gospel to the nations, can I just tell you, The reason why lots of people in the world don't like America is because lots of people in our world are starving to death while we live in opulence. And we might have a better hearing from the world if we took that which God has given to us and shared it with people in need. Because people who are hungry can't hear us talk about Jesus dying for their sins. But when we put feet to our prayers, when we like Abby Tracy, when we like Scott and Abby, when we, when we go to a world in need, when we go like Chris and Jess to Peru, and we care for people's needs, we get the chance to care for their souls. And there is hope in that. The God of justice is the God of love, who so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And if you believe in that God, then serve him by serving the world, by giving your life away. Emily Dickinson said, hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the hope, the undying hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Thank you that Jesus Christ took your wrath upon himself. So our only hope of salvation is by running to the cross and receiving your gift of salvation. Lord, we'll not save ourselves by our good works, but we thank you that Jesus Christ has taken the penalty for sin upon himself so that if we believe in him, we can be saved. Lord, help us to believe that. Help us to live that this week. And give us your heart, Lord. Let our hearts be broken by the things that break your heart. And Amos tells us your heart is broken by people who are poor, and who are trampled by those who are rich. God, open our eyes that we may see your love for the nations and give us hearts to love people beyond ourselves the way that you love them. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.